Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you so much for tuning in. And we've got a, a, so much to talk about today with our guest, Gary Ka. And I just want to get right into it here as soon as we open in prayer. Um, Father in heaven, we thank you for a new day. We acknowledge that you are sovereign and in control. Great is your faithfulness. We also acknowledge our weakness, Lord. Um, when we are weak, you are strong in us. And we pray in Jesus' name that you'd give us wisdom. You'd give us discernment, and for, for believers in Christ, Lord, encourage the, their hope that we have, the security we have in Jesus Christ and your eternal word, Lord. Thank you for it. Thank you that we are not without answers. We can look to your word for truth, and we can look at this world and what's happening through that biblical lens. Uh, help us. Give us greater understanding. Open the eyes of our heart and draw us closer to you, uh, regardless of where we're at in these uh, Uh, crazy times in whatever circumstances we're going through. Some have been affected, some have not been affected as much, but Lord, we help us to rely on you. We want to see you be glorified in the name of Jesus, be lifted up, not only here in our communities and in this country, but around the world. So help us be about your business and uh, help us to do the work that you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're so blessed to have Gary Ka back with us, Hope for the World. Uh, Gary, thank you so much for taking the time to be back on Stand Up for the Truth. First of all, how are things in Indiana with you? And you have a daughter and a son-in-law that work at a hospital. Uh, Your daughter is an RN. Uh, Her husband, Alyssa's husband, Tony, is a respiratory therapist. Tell us how they're doing, and if you can give us any inside information on what, what they have observed during this coronavirus crisis. Hot and heavy, you know. I mean, uh, they were dealing with a lot of uh, teen patients, and began happening a couple of weeks ago. Is uh, the number of COVID patients began going down, and then uh, some of the nurses uh, had to be laid off or the hours cut back because um, a lot of the surgeries that normally would be taking place are not happening. Uh, in part because uh, some patients are afraid to have the surgeries right now. They don't want to go into the hospital. And also there are some doctors that simply aren't having hours right now. They're just communicating with uh, their patients, you know, uh, through Zoom and, 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 and things like that. And so the medical, the whole, our whole health care system is being affected negatively by all this. And hospitals that are operating close to the brink, some of them may actually go bankrupt over this. Now, the hospital that my daughter and son-in-law uh, are at, I, I think, is healthy enough financially. I think they'll be able to ride it out, uh, hopefully. Um, but, you know, when you're looking at two months of regular surgeries that would normally be occurring not taking place, mm. and uh, somewhere there have to be cuts, you know, nurses are going to have to be laid off. And there's already a nursing shortage to begin with, so when everything kicks back into uh, a normal routine, 
Um, they're going to have to bring back these nurses and, and, and if they're still available, but some of these nurses are, are trying to look for other jobs because they can't make it on just a part-time income. So it's just, it's messing with everything. Uh, and there's a real irony in all this, you know, so we're supposedly in this pandemic, this health crisis, but yet it's our healthcare system that could end up on the brink of bankruptcy after all of this. And, uh, with a lot fewer services and, and quality of care, and, um, you know, something similar is, is happening in the food industry, and we can get into that later. But uh, as far as our daughter and son-in-law are concerned, they still have their jobs. They've been there long enough um, that they're, uh, you know, they're not among the first ones uh, cut out. But some parts of the hospital are practically empty. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's really, it's surreal, you know, what, what is, is, is taking place. Wait a minute. Well, and, can you please clarify something for us, Gary? Wasn't the... F- the first goal of uh, the experts, wasn't it to flatten the curve, so to speak, and, and to prevent the uh, healthcare system hospitals from being overwhelmed? Well, that's what they said. And, and um, of course, there was, you know, for two or three weeks uh, here in the Midwest, uh, there were areas where hospitals were, you know, really flooded with new patients but it didn't last real long. You know, after a few weeks, that died down. And then the normal surgeries and and normal routines that would take place in a hospital haven't fired back up yet. And so there's this, this, you know, huge lull. And hospitals, of course, you know, they have to make income to be able to stay in existence. So you take the surgeries away and fewer patients in the hospital, and and they can go belly up fairly quickly. Hmm. So it it is a a type of irony we're we're seeing here. And and I, my personal opinion is what was done wrong in all of this, you don't shut down an entire country uh, when there are problems in certain areas that are a lot worse than others. You focus on those areas, and you also target the groups that are most vulnerable and quarantine them. Uh, for example, uh, nursing homes. Um, I think a third of the people who have died in the country, and at least in some parts of the country, uh, were in nursing homes because when yeah. COVID-19 got in there and spread, you know, we had a, a case here just not too far from where I live, uh, maybe a 20, 30-minute drive, where I think 20 or 25 people in one nursing home died. And and so that's what what, you know, we needed to focus and target on. But by shutting down the entire country, in the long term, it may do more damage than good. Mm-hmm. And um, something else, uh, just a few days ago, I was uh, communicating with two friends in, in Sweden. It was part of a board meeting, uh, a board of an organization that I'm um, involved in. And they, uh, again, drove home the point that they did nothing. I mean, Sweden basically took no action at all on COVID-19. And their top scientists said, you know, we believe herd immunity will kick in and we're going to get through this just as fast. Why destroy the economy? And it's looking as if they're right. I mean, they were within two to three weeks of completely pulling out of this. They did nothing. Now, the countries around them, like Denmark, Norway, um, you know, uh, the Netherlands, places like that, they took much more drastic actions. And in the case of the Netherlands, things turned out a lot worse there rather than better. And in the immediate uh, surrounding countries like Denmark, uh, Denmark did have a lower death rate, at least what's recorded, than Sweden. Mm. But part of that, it's believed, is due to the fact that um, Sweden 
keep such track of people. It's practically a surveillance society. They have a much tighter record keeping, and so probably just because they're good record keeping, it accounted for more numbers of people being infected and and dying than maybe what was tracked in some of the other countries. So what I'm saying is when everything is said and done, there was very little difference um, between Sweden and, and Denmark and Norway. Um, and, and so we at least have to take a look at that. You know, some mm-hmm. people might roll their eyes and say, okay, this is conspiracy theories, this is nonsense, whatever. No, really, Sweden has come through this in, in fairly good shape, and they didn't have to ruin their economy to do it. And so then you have to ask some bigger questions. You know, what, what is the long-term effect of, of all this going to be in the United States? Uh, we had a 3.5% unemployment rate. Uh, I would say we'll be doing good to get back to a 6 or 7% unemployment rate eventually after all this, mm. but there will be long-term consequences. I mean, parts of the economy are not going to bounce fully back. And um, and so, you know, you have to look at, at the big picture, and uh, hopefully we'll learn something from this and, and not make uh, the same mistakes again. I hope we'll learn from it, but <laughs> I'm skeptical. Um, Gary Ka, Hope for the World, uh, we're talking about the COVID crisis and what's been happening, not just on a, a national stage, but the world stage. You said in your uh, article that you wrote uh, last month, that if you are among the fortunate few whose life has not yet been drastically impacted by COVID-19, brace yourself because it soon could be. And I recently wrote something um, to friends and posted on social media, said for those who have lots of free time these days or those who say they're bored trying to find ways to entertain themselves during these stay-home orders, uh, during the COVID-19-related schedule changes, remember that many of us uh, are living life as normal or as busy as we, we've always been. Some of us are going through hard times, difficult seasons, and some are just trying to keep up. And I said that because one of the, my observations, Gary, and I would love for you to weigh in on this, is just looking at my the Christian community generally, generally, that it seems like a lot of people were not taking advantage of the downtime. They were not redeeming the time. They were complaining about being bored, complaining about not being able to go to their favorite restaurant or whatever. All these things were worldly things. And I'm thinking, wow, are we going to learn from this? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, you know, it, we have all been affected by this in one way or another by now. I'd say most people in the country, unless you, you live in a real rural area in a small town out in Texas somewhere, you know, uh, most people have been impacted and those who haven't yet are going to face I think some of the economic consequences which haven't fully uh kicked in yet and um so there there's there's going to be a huge impact but we could have used this time uh, much more wisely uh seeking the lord uh uh doing more to get the gospel out and 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 some people have mm-hmm. I mean there have yes. been pockets of people really getting on their knees before the Lord and, and somewhat of a, of a mini-revival taking place in some some areas. But I was hoping that would be nationwide, and that has not materialized. Uh, I would say that most Americans are, are not responding to this crisis by seeking God and no. repenting of their sins. Instead, uh, they are chasing earthly pleasures and, and idols even more than before. And um, when you look at some of the statistics... Uh, well, the, the very first week that COVID-19 kicked in, uh, according to a Nielsen um, survey, and I, and I documented this in my article, um, the um, 
use of alcohol jumped 55% during the first week. And tequila and gin uh, rose 70%. The harder the liquor, the higher the percentage went up. And um, uh, now, uh, last week, I saw that some liquor stores, their sales were up 300%. Uh, Pornography is through the roof. Uh, child abuse has soared. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, just a lot of bad things were going on. I was hoping that the opposite would happen. And yes. again, there's some good that has taken place uh, in, in Christian families. Sometimes the fact that uh, families are having to spend more time together, uh, parents have been, a- have been able to use that time wisely to teach their, their kids to do things together, to draw closer as a family, uh, and, and things like that. But on the whole, nationwide, that hasn't been the case. Uh, there's been much more negative coming out of this than, than positive. So, uh, you know, I think you and I, we share the same sentiments on that. I, I think we were hoping for uh, for something better, but people are, they're bored stiff. We're in an entertainment society, and mm-hmm. if people can't go to the movie theater or go out to a different restaurant every night, um, or, you know, go to sports, uh, yes, outings, sports. um, it, you know, that's become such a huge part of American life that people can't really, uh, figure out how to deal with it when that's not, um, a regular part of their, of their lives. And it really shows you, it goes to show how unimportant God has become and how little time people really do spend with the Lord, um, you know, shamefully on our part. I had John Haller on uh, recently talking about the prophetic worldview here and what's happening, and some of these uh, national and world events are actually stunning if you you look back maybe 10, 20 years, and few of us saw this coming. The potential was always there, but we're going to get to that. We're going to get to the global digital ID and things like that. We're going to talk about the fatality rate, which you say is the most significant number to consider, but you said in an email that you sent me over the weekend. I, I just want you to share what your story here that uh, you've been warning friends uh, for weeks of a coming meat shortage. And, uh, you know, the supply chains are getting pretty screwed up, and, and we're praying for the farmers and the agricultural industri- industry. But, Gary, um, share what you know and what you can uh, tell us about this. Well, a few weeks ago, um, this would have been, I'd say, early April maybe, early to mid-April, Within the space of a couple of days, I got a call from Canada from a major Christian farmer up there um, who knows what's going on throughout the country. I mean, he's, he's in the know. And then I got a call from a large Christian farmer in the heartland uh, who also has been in the business for many, many years and is on the pulse of things. And both of them felt led to call me. And, and so it really got my attention, and they both essentially said the same thing. Now, the farmer in Canada, he said there's going to be a meat shortage. There are going to be uh, meat processing plants that shut down, and um, in a month or two, there's going to be a, a food shortage, uh, especially in the meat area. And I said, you know, what's that all about? Why? What, what's going on here? And he said... Um, well, they're going to be shutting down plants even if just a couple of people have COVID-19. It's going to be used as an excuse to, to shut things down. And he already had a couple of examples where that had happened. And then we got to talking about who owns these companies. 
and he alluded to China being uh, heavily involved. And I was assuming by heavily involved, maybe you know, 20 or 30 percent of the industry that they influence. And when we got to talk about the numbers, he said, no, Gary, unfortunately, it's closer to 70, 80 percent. Hmm. I said, what do you mean? He said, as far as the supply chain goes of meat products, either owning the farms themselves or the packing uh, and, uh, the, you know, the butchering uh, places, uh, China is involved in 70 to 80 percent of uh, the meat processing um, of, the, of the process from A to Z. So, in other words, they have a stranglehold on it. I had no idea. Uh, now, that was in his province in, in Canada. Uh, so I talked to the farmer here in the U.S. I called him back, and he gave me an example where in Pennsylvania, um, a meat processing plant that deals with 400 heads of beef a day. I mean, I'm sorry, 4,000, a huge facility. He said in their administration office, they had two people with COVID-19, and the whole operation was shut down, even though they never even go into the meat area. Huh. It had nothing to do with that. At the, at the time, no one uh, involved in dealing with the meat had COVID-19, but the whole operation was shut down. Then he began sharing of other places around the country that had uh, you know, higher percentages of COVID-19. They were being shut down. And then he gave specific examples of some of those. In fact, by now, probably everybody who's watching the news at all has heard about Smithfield uh, uh, Company in Iowa uh, that processes hogs. Yes. And um, uh, what I didn't know, according to this farmer, and I believe he's a good source, he said that they were owned by China. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and so the, I, I thought, you've got to be kidding. And so here in this country, too, China has been coming in, buying out farms, uh, processing plants. And see, so President Trump, he's between a rock and a hard spot. Uh, not only does China control a lot of our food industry, uh, but they make 90 percent of our um, antibiotics yes. and 70 percent of our acetaminophen. And so if he pushes back too hard, they could just cut us off of everything, and, um, and we're in a real bind. And so the last few administrations, which is, have been worthless wow. in this area, uh, have let our country slip away under foreign ownership, and now we're, we're paying a huge price. So Trump can only move so fast. There's only so much that he can do because China has so much control over the situation. One other thing I wanted to mention this was in the case of, of uh, my Canadian friend, and I doubt it would be much different here in the United States. He said, Gary, the way they have done this over the last five to ten years, and he's been aware of this, he has seen all this unfold. He said um, there was a, a, a big farmer who attends his church. He died uh, prematurely in his 40s of a massive heart attack. Within weeks, uh, a company uh, showed up at his farm, spoke to his widow, and asked very gently certain questions like, you know, do you plan to carry on your farm by yourself? Um, you know, do you have pieces in place to be able to do so or, or what? And, um, and then if, um, if, depending on how she responded, they would ask the question, um, how much would you consider? Uh, no, first they asked, would, would you consider selling your farm? And this particular widow said, uh, no, we are not interested in, in selling the farm. Then they said, well, suppose you would be. Let's just pretend for a moment. Suppose you would be willing to sell your farm. How much, 
would you consider selling it for? And let's say she says, you know, I mean, this is hundreds and hundreds of acres. Let's say she says $5 million. Then they come back and, and say, we'll give you $10 million. Now, how many people would not go for that wow. under those circumstances? Huh. And he said he has seen this happen over and over again in his province. And so, and then he found out that a lot of these um, organizations are front organizations for China and certain other foreign countries. And so piece by piece, over the last couple of decades, uh, much of our farming industry has come under the control of foreign interests that are not friendly, really, toward the United States. Wow. They're trying to gain control behind the scenes, uh, Canada and the United States, I should say. And most people have been completely unaware of this. We've had some idea of this going on for over a decade, but not to the degree that I've just learned in the last month. It's, it's much worse than anything I imagined. And in the past, I held back a little bit just because I don't want to come across like an alarmist. And it turns out things are at least twice as bad as what I had previously uh, thought. And this is coming directly from people involved in farming. They gave specific examples of, of what is going on. And uh, even in late March, um, we got a call from the wife of, of um, our uh, farming contact in the United States and she said, um, food is being plowed under the ground in California. Get ready. There's going to be a food shortage. And this was a few weeks before I found out about the meat part of it and everything else. So it's, it's not just meat, but it's in other areas as well. And, and so people right now, anyone listening to this program, just to be safe, make sure you're stocked up on things. Uh, President Trump did uh, issue an executive order last week telling the meat plants to open back up. Mm. And so they, they are gradually opening, but they're not going to be able to produce at the same level that they were before because of the social distancing guidelines. And so they'll be operating at a certain capacity, but not full capacity. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's, I think it's, it's going to affect all of us. I don't know how severely mm. and how quickly uh, it can rebound. But the troubling news that came out of all this, my main point is how much foreign ownership there is in our food industry. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I want to talk more. We've got to take a break uh, about this uh, supply and demand issue because it, it, things just really don't add up. And I'm glad you shared that uh, story about the farming. We want to talk more about that. Uh, we're with Gary Ka, Hope for the World. A lot more to get to when we come back on Stand Up for the Truth. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. Our guest today is Gary Ka, Hope For The World. And that's, uh, we always want you to, to point you to that hope, regardless of what's happening. We know that the Bible is true, and we have a hope that can never perish, fade away, or spoil. And that hope we have in Christ, remember, friends, it's an anchor to our souls. Um, Gary, let's continue Amen. on this idea of the, the supply and the demand. I, I understand with all the major sports arenas and festivals and and uh, theme parks and, and on and on and on, these major convention centers shut down. I understand there's not a demand for food, for a lot of different foods that they serve there. But it's confusing to a lot of us that the supply you're saying is going to be limited, if not already severely limited. You mentioned in an email to me that you spoke with a lady that purchases uh, meat for a local McDonald's. Can you share a little bit about that? 
Oh, yeah. Uh, this was just a few days ago. Um, I was the only one uh, going through the drive through to get my morning iced coffee, and <laughs> I had kind of gotten to know this lady, and there wasn't anybody behind us, and so we were, were just chatting, and she said, yeah, she just uh, placed her order uh, the day before for all their meat, and they would only let her place an order for half the amount that she normally orders. And so it's already beginning to impact uh, even places like McDonald's. Huh. And there, there is a lot of confusion. I think part of it is there, there are moving parts, a number of moving parts in all of this. Um, and I asked the same question of, of my farming friends because I, I was trying to get a handle on this myself. You would think, okay, you still have the same number of people roughly in the United States alive who are consuming food. So why is there such a big shift in, in demand for food and everything going on in the, in the food industry, apart from what I, what I already explained before the break? And uh, one of my uh, farming friends said, well, believe it or not, the food that people order in restaurants – on average, over a third of it gets wasted. People don't eat it all because the portions are so big. Mm -hmm. And so that alone, when you shut down restaurants, uh, you think, well, people are still eating food at home, so they're buying the same amount, but they're not. Uh, there's actually less demand for food right now to begin with be um, because of the fact that people aren't eating out and they're not going to these large conventions and things like, like what you mentioned. So that has an impact as well. But you would think, okay, so some of that would be offset, right, by these mm -hmm. meat plants that are closing down. So why now is there all of a sudden a shortage and, and, and there's a disconnect uh, in that area? But if you close enough meat plants down, even if there isn't quite as, demand, as much demand for food as normal, it's still going to have an impact. You know, if you close a third of the meat uh, packing plants down in the Midwest, it's going to have an impact. And so that is happening. And uh, also with, um, uh, with not just meat, but, but with uh, fruits and vegetables, uh, the same thing. If you close restaurants down and they're not ordering, um, you're, you know, there's going to be less uh, need for food. And, and so farmers, in some cases, haven't been able to sell their food to the normal channels and are having mm. a hard time getting it out. But there's even more to it than that. And this is where government bureaucracy plays into it. And this was carefully explained to me by uh, my, uh, a farming friend from, from Missouri. He said, um, the way things have been set up, the loans that farmers get, it, that, where they have to borrow money to put seed into the ground, uh, a lot of these are through the government now rather than local banks. Some of that is still going through local banks, but over the years it, it's shifted more uh, toward the government. So farmers have become more dependent on the government for their loans. And there's fine print in some of these loans that if they uh, uh, acquire government help in such a way that they will not be able under any condition to sell their food, their produce, uh, to locals. It has to go through a certain distribution channel. And so the idea of farmers setting up uh, their own local markets and selling what food they have uh, to whoever comes along, in some cases that's not possible. I was completely unaware of that. And so there, there are certain stipulations. So in, in some cases, farmers are actually having to plow their food underground wow. rather than being able to sell it to at least people that are willing to buy it from, from them locally. Or mm. if they did that, they kind of have to do it um, uh, you know, under the table, so to speak. So there's all kinds of things like this going on, and it, 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 it's just a mess. It's not just one, one thing that's out of kilter. It's, it's several right. things. And, 
So Right. I understand how, for example, um, the supply chain is not set up to change quickly and rapidly in a situation like this. And uh, I've heard people talk about for the example of you, if you grow vegetables and you supplied food to restaurants and schools and major uh, centers where there's a lot of uh, traffic or tourism, you can't just suddenly shift your operation and sh- send stuff to the grocery stores if they didn't order it and if they don't need it. So it's right. it's really amazing. This whole thing is amazing. But what do you know? The, the head of the UN uh, World Food Program warned that COVID-19 will worsen the existing hunger crisis around the world, resulting in food shortages and famine. And it, I apparently they said that right now Americans aren't uh, seeing or understanding this, but it, it could happen with, uh, with countries that aren't, aren't as fortunate. Can you share a little bit about that and how the UN and the World Food Pro- Program comes into play here? Well, on, on this, I'm going to have to speculate some. Uh, it'll be based upon many of the things that I just shared with you, um, but, I, but still, so I have to be careful on, on this. Um, <laughs> this is a very complicated subject. Okay, in other words, in don't, don't quote that, you. That I've learned. I, I, I do want to just say this, and, and this is where it really gets even more controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of moving parts. Some of it is just because of the rapid change this has produced. Like you said, it's a supply chain issue where, where farmers can't just shift from you know, going one direction to going completely in another direction. But there's also a lot of manipulation going behind the scenes yes. that is helping to produce this problem and to magnify it. And that, that's where I, I have a real issue with things. I, to me, it seems more and more uh, like there has been a deliberate effort to help make this crisis a lot worse. And, you know, when I start going down this line, it becomes pretty uh, conspiratorial. But I, I have to share this with, with the listeners. I just can't resist it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, last year, and if people read my article, by the way, go to GaryCod.org and read the article, COVID-19, A Global Conditioning. Uh, it'll be the first article listed. You, you really need to read that. Yes, yes, um, it's phenomenal. And so again, GaryCod.org. Um, in that article, I go into a lot of detail about a meeting that took place last October in New York City called Event 201, um, a global pandemic exercise. Interesting. Yes. And the parties that were involved, they're many of the same one-world groups that we've been following for years that are pushing global government. And here they're involved in this pandemic exercise. And they even, in this exercise, they um, uh, called it the coronavirus. Now, this was two months before we know that the virus broke out. And a friend of mine in Ohio who was in the military, one of my very closest friends, called me last fall and told me that um, he got a job posting for uh, to apply for a job as quarantine specialist for the dates of November 15th to May 15th. Now, this was uh, late October or so, early November, somewhere in there, and they were looking for people to fill these positions, quarantine specialists for November 15th to May 15th. And he said he'd never gotten anything like this before. If, you know, if this is an annual kind of thing where people are preparing for the flu season, that would be understandable, mm-hmm. but he was wondering from me what do you know anything about this? It's kind of strange yeah. you know, that I'm getting a, 
I mean, what do they know that we don't? And, and then I forgot all about that. And huh. he contacted me again in, in mid-April and told me of that. And I said, that's right. You told me. About, I, I forgot all about that. So <laughs> they were preparing for some type of pandemic, it appears. It was more than just a dress rehearsal in New York City with Event 201. There were actually job listings going out looking for quarantine specialists long before any of this ever hit. Wow. And and then when you find out that the Rockefeller Foundation has been involved in, in uh, seed money for um, uh, ID2020, this mm-hmm. digital ID, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has been heavily involved in all of this, and, and um, uh, you know, you, you've got a, a lot of the same one-world players that are pushing for a digital identification uh, to result from this crisis and also a mandatory vaccine. And these two uh, uh, parallel tracks are now merging together and becoming one. And so it's looking more and more as if they are using this crisis to move the global population toward the acceptance of a cashless monetary, electronic monetary unit and a digital identification system uh, for every man, woman, and child on the planet and a mandatory vaccine to go with it. Wow. And so, you know, this is real reason for concern. And even this morning on Fox, you know, the question was asked a couple of times, are we still living in the United States of America, or is this Soviet Russia? I mean, some of the dictatorial types of things that governors have been doing. um, uh, You know, you can go to a liquor store or go through a drive-through, but you can't be in a drive-in church where cars are sitting 10 feet away from each other and people are staying in the cars. You know, what's that all about? And so the American people really need to wake up about this. And if we don't make some noise right now, uh, especially um, uh, citizens regarding their own governors, uh, they're going to try a lot more. It's almost like a test to see how far they can go. And I was just doing a program uh, two days ago, and and, um, the question was asked, you know, is this just a test run? And I, I said, I think at this point they're really going for it still because they've, they've brought things so far. If they can pull this off on this round, they'll do so. But if they can't pull it off, they'll use this as a trial run, learn from it, and then try again a little bit later. Yep. But right now, David, the timetable they're operating under is 12 to 18 months from now. They'd like to pull off putting the entire planet into a one-world system with a mandatory vaccine and a digital ID to go with it uh, within the next year, year and a half. So unless people make a lot of noise and push back on this and say, not so fast, you're not going to do this to us and take away our freedoms like that, um, this thing could come about much more quickly than people imagine. And who would have thought three months ago, you know, that we'd be in the situation we're in right now? I mean, people did not see this coming. Nope. So, you know, this is a time to get right with the Lord and, and uh, be walking closely with him so that we can hear his voice, that, that we understand what the Holy Spirit is, is telling us at this point in time. Very important that we are walking closely with the Lord. Well, Gary, there's so much more. I do want to get more into the Gates Foundation and the ID2020, but, and we've got to take a break in three minutes, but you led the, me to think about this. Um, well, I just want to ask you, um, Pope Francis, in his role in the New World Order and 
Uh, he's been idolized by the UN, and th- there's some concerning things about him. I mean, I've been reading some articles on, on what's going on with him lately, and he recently, I guess the month of May is customarily uh, dedicated to Mary among Roman Catholics, and uh, U.S. and Canadian conferences of Catholic bishops just met to consecrate the nations to Mary and ask her to intercede in this uh, coronavirus pandemic. want to get your thoughts on how the Pope is pushing globalism. Well, he has been very close to Guterres, the U.N. Secretary General. The two of them have have been two peas in a pod, so to speak. Uh, numerous um, uh, interactions and conversations between them, and they, they seem to be launching things at the same time, mm-hmm. as if it's coordinated between the Vatican and the U.N. So that's something uh, people need to be aware of. But I found out last September that the Pope was planning to launch on May 14th, that's just days from now, a global compact on education. That's what he is calling it, a global compact on education, because apparently there's some more global conditioning that is required through education to prepare everybody for the new world order. And this is going to involve every area of life. I mean, this Pope is involved uh, from the economy to the environment, you know, you name it. He's been pushing socialism on the political front. Uh, he's involved in this movement up to his eyeballs. He really, truly is. Mm-hmm. And all you have to look at is you, have, you just have to look at the statements coming out of the Vatican over the last year, and you can judge what is taking place just from their own words. You don't have to take, you know, take um, my word on this. So uh, we need to be aware of that because if he's sticking with that date, which I'm not sure it could change because he wanted to have a big audience there, you know, and media coverage on all this. And because of COVID-19, ironically, uh, maybe it'll be pushed out a few weeks uh, so that he can get a bigger crowd on this announcement. This, But this is to be a really, really big deal. So whether it's May 14th or sometime in June, uh, it's coming. It's just around the corner. It's very fascinating. Uh, his involvement. I mean, he's been speaking out on environmentalism and Um, We don't have time to get into all that, but we definitely see his push to unite the world and uh, the world, maybe the world religions. And uh, we're we're heading inch by inch. We're getting closer to this one world government and possibly one world religion, although that seems a little further away. But we've got to take a break and we will get into ID2020 and Bill Gates, education and vaccines when we come back with Gary Ka on Stand Up For The Truth. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. We have Gary Ka on the program today, and uh, we are talking about uh, the one world uh, religion, one world government, globalism, ID2020 in a minute. But we were wrapping up some thoughts, Gary, um, on Pope Francis and um, the uh, global impact on education and other things he's working on. Yeah, his big push is for world unification. He uses that term over and over, and I'm sure his education effort that's going to be global is just mainly for the purpose of stressing uh, unification, global unification, uh, politically, economically, from a religious standpoint in every area. And he's also a big part of the global green movement. And he's become a darling of of the uh, hyper-environmental movement, and and so that's going to play into this as well. And um, I wanted to let uh, listeners know, if they're not already aware of this, um, that last year he spoke at the World Government Summit in Dubai uh, through uh, telescreen. 
he was the keynote speaker. And, and that, yeah, that's the actual name of the conference. Uh, you know, what used to be real behind the scenes and, and that type of thing now, I mean, they're calling it the World Government Summit. Wow. That, that was the name of this. And so he has openly now, now come out in favor of, of world government, made numerous statements calling for it in, in various ways. And so we don't have to guess about this anymore or try to put hidden pieces together. It's out front now. It's out in the open. Uh, these characters feel um, secure enough in what they are doing because they believe they have the numbers on their sides. They've got 80, 90 percent of the world media uh, in their back pocket pushing the same agenda. Uh, the major universities in the United States, 80, 90 percent of them, I would say, yeah. are uh, also in their back pocket. And, and so the main resistance now that they have left is coming from the right, especially the Christian right, evangelical Christians. And, um, you know, we in the United States, I, I would say, just from experience, Christians that really know what's going on and have a, a pretty good idea and are allowing it to impact their lives properly, maybe 10 to 15 percent of the population right now, I, I don't think it's much more than that. And I'd say you've got maybe 35 percent of Americans that would classify themselves as conservatives, but half of those people are simply conservative from the standpoint of being patriotic, you right. know, and not wanting to come under communist control. But as far as really being solid Christians, the number is much smaller than that. And and so, yes, we're big enough to still have a voice, but we're in the minority now. Yeah. We're not a majority. You've got a majority of Americans who I believe, whether they realize it or not, have trended towards socialism, and they've bought into it. And and so we're in a whole different place now than we were 30 or 40 years ago, and we need to be aware of that. And that's why these forces are moving so quickly. They smell an opportunity. And if they can take the economy away from Trump, you know, the 3.5% unemployment rate that he had, uh, you know, that he boasted about quite regularly, and it was, you know, a, a big accomplishment. Well, you take that away from him, and, uh, you know, there's a much greater chance that he might be defeated this fall, depending who he runs again uh, against. And I personally believe, just my opinion, um, if Biden is forced to step aside because of scandal or whatever, and if, if Cuomo were to run and um, uh, took Michelle Obama as his vice presidential running mate, they would probably win. Yep. I'm, I'm just telling you, given the, the overall atmosphere in the country, and I think some Democrats are pushing that because they realize that uh, uh, Biden, uh, probably from Trump's standpoint, running against Biden would be the best case scenario, yes. in, my, you know, in my opinion. So we'll have to see how all this plays out politically, but a lot of things are, are going to become more clear over the next few months. Yeah, most of us, we're, you know, we, we're looking at Biden and how he's been responding lately, and he's slowed down, and he's, he's just not remembering things. And some of the stuff, some of his answers to very simple questions are like, what, really, what? And this guy wants to represent the country? Um, I want to move to ID2020 and this push now. I thought it would be even stronger than it is, Gary, this push to go cashless in society. Um, there's research that has come out saying um, we have to refrain from using paper money, but credit cards, even on plastic, this virus or, I don't know, germs can be on plastic cards. I thought there would be even a greater push to get rid of all this and just go digital. Yeah, well, it, it began officially with the World Health Organization. On March 2nd, they issued a call uh, for people to refrain from using uh, cash and um, 
and then with that, of course, you know, presumably uh, credit cards, because <laughs> Uh, the germs live on credit cards longer than they do on cash. Uh, plastic holds it longer than, than currency. But in the United States, at least, um, if the World Health Organization comes out with something, um, you want to make conservatives real leery about something, that, that's the way to introduce it. So that was a big mistake on the part of the globalists, was to have the World Health yes. Organization come out saying what they did. That made a lot of flags go up right away, and so there's been quite a bit of pushback to it. So they could have been probably more creative on, on that front. And, of course, by now most people know the World Health Organization is headed up by a socialist. Uh, he was a socialist revolutionary in, um, in Ethiopia uh, who happens to be a close ally of, of China, and I'm talking about Ghebreyesus. And the second-in-command at the World Health Organization, get this, was a top government official for China in the area of the health industry. <laughs> and so you have the top two people at the World Health Organization in the back pocket of China, and they're trying to tell us what to do. So that hasn't gone over real well. And then a, a couple of weeks later, uh, Trump announced he was going to defund the World Health Organization, which I was very happy yes. about. Yes. And, and so they kind of blew it on that one. The globalists did, uh, big time. But they're still working behind the scenes on the technology and getting everything in place for this mm -hmm. digital ID. And so let me give you a quick overview on that. Um, you've got a group of very influential globalists. Uh, they put together the ID2020 Alliance. And in 2018, they drafted the ID2020 Alliance Manifesto in partnership with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And um, it's calling for a universal uh, digital ID for every man, woman, and child. And they're saying this is a, this is a quote, it's a fundamental and universal human right, end quote. So that's how they're going to sell this to people, that everyone has a right. Every human being has the right to their own personal digital ID. In September, on September 19th of 2019, uh, this elite body, which consists of government leaders, te top technologists, global banking reps, uh, distinguished members of academia, top UN agency officials, and so forth, they convened in New York City for the ID2020 summit to take this to the next level. And uh, that summit was sponsored by four groups. There may have been some others, but these are the ones I'm aware of. It includes the UN Office of Information Communications Technology, the UN Refugee Agency, the International Telecommunication Union, and the Danish Mission to the United Nations. Huh. So the UN, very involved in all of this. And if people want more information, if it's still posted, you can go to their website. It's id2020.org, and you can kind of glean some, some facts from that. Uh, but I can tell you, in summary, <clears throat> The most influential ID2020 Alliance partners are Microsoft, Gavi, which is an acronym, G-A-V-I, and it stands for the Global Alliance of Vaccines and Immunizations. Um, and by the way, since writing my article, I learned uh, that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, gave $750 million to Gavi wow. to help launch all that. So not only is Microsoft involved, but the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is involved from the standpoint that they uh, were the main funding source to launch Gavi to begin with. Then you also have the Rockefeller Foundation involved in this alliance, and they provided the initial seed money 
to launch the ID2020 Alliance. And of course, in my book, In Roots of Global Occupation, if you've read that, you know how much involved the Rockefeller Foundation has been really from day one in the whole One World Movement throughout the last century in the United States. Uh, you also have Accenture, uh, uh, top UN agencies and international banking leaders involved in this, and the World Economic Forum, which for all practical purposes provides a special platform for launching ID2020's programs. And of course, they meet in Davos, Switzerland each year, usually in, in January, early February. And um, in January of 2019, a little over a year ago, this alliance launched their ID2020 certification mark at the World Economic Forum in Davos. So let me uh, go into a little bit of detail on this, the certification mark. In short, it's intended to further digitize the global commerce system and serve as a stepping stone toward a personal digital ID for every man, woman, and child. To quote them directly, they say, a unique convergence of trends provides an unprecedented opportunity to make a coordinated, concerted push to provide digital ID to everyone. Hmm. End quote. To take it the final step, vaccines tie into all this because yes. they've realized that they might be able to bring all of this in on the backs of a universal mandatory vaccine. So at their 2019 summit, ID2020 made the following statement. They unveiled their latest program. It says, quote, recognizing the opportunity for immunization to serve as a platform for digital identity this program leverages existing vaccination and birth registration operations to offer newborns a persistent and portable biometrically linked digital identity, end quote. So they're making clear that they are riding on the back of, of the whole vaccine program. Wow. Now, remember, this was, these statements were made over a year ago before COVID-19 came along. Right. So how convenient that all of a sudden we have this global outbreak, yep. and the only way out of the situation is a mandatory vaccine for every man, woman, and child. That Gates, by the way, is funding seven of these uh, vaccines right now, the pursuit of these vaccines. So you've got uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation heavily involved in all of that, and it's working completely in sync with the call for a digital ID for everyone. Wow. So we see how all this is, is, is coming together. So to summarize it, here's the bottom line. You've got dedicated globalists involved in so-called solving the COVID-19 pandemic. These same characters are also putting in place a one-world cashless commerce system that will include a device-free digital identification mark for every human being. The UN's world government agenda, in cooperation with, with its closest allies, has permeated and is driving the international response to the coronavirus. That's where we're at. Wow. Wow. And when you say Mark, most of us who understand Revelation and Bible prophecy go, wow, this uh, could happen in our lifetime. Oh, Gary Ka, Hope for the World. Um, we've got a minute left. I just want to give you an opportunity to remind people of the hope that we do have, in, in regardless of what's going on around us. And uh, we've, we've really got to be on our toes and be in prayer, don't we? We, we do. And, and uh, ultimately, um, and I share this in my article, what the Lord most desires from us at this point is our complete surrender to Him. 
Um, we need to be walking in lockstep with the Lord, uh, hearing His voice, being obedient to Him, and letting go of everything else. All the frivolous things in, in life, all of our the pursuit of entertainment, all that. Mm. Yeah, the Lord wants us to have some downtime, too, and be able to relax, but our main drive right now needs to be uh, our obedience to Him and walking closely with Him. He is our security. Amen. Uh, we are get our peace from God. Our hope comes from Him, nothing else. The Lord Himself is our hope, our rock, in whom we trust. And um, if we get that, we will be able to sleep well at nights and keep our peace. But, you know, the rest of the world that isn't walking in step with the Lord, mm. they see all this going on, and they're going to panic. Yes. I mean, it's, gonna, it's not going to get any better over the next few years. We're going to move more and more in this direction. So surrender to the Lord. Realize that Jesus alone is our Savior. Our eternity is secure through Him. If you have not accepted Jesus as your Savior, you need to do so right now. Amen. Don't he, delay. He is our hope. Gary Ka, Hope for, world, for the World. We will put your article in today's Standard for the Truth Notes. I had to read it again over the weekend. It's just so full of great information. Gary, God bless you. Stay uh, healthy, and we'll, God willing, we'll talk to you again in the near future. All right. Take care, David. Thanks, Gary. All right, when we come back, we'll let you know about the guests the rest of this week. Stand Up For The Truth, a ministry of Lakeshore Communications Incorporated. Keep the discussion going on social media. Stand Up WI on Facebook and Twitter. Now we wrap up today's Stand Up For The Truth. I'm excited to have a first-time guest, Christopher Yuan. He's a speaker, an author, a Bible professor, and uh, he was a former homosexual. He's got a book out called Holy sexuality, and the gospel. And I can't wait to hear his testimony and talk about him explaining the uh, truth and the concept of, of sexuality and uh, singleness, faithfulness, marriage, relationships. And uh, Christopher, you on tomorrow. Um, also, we'll hear from Laura Perry, former transgender, on Wednesday. Pastor Carl Gallops on Thursday. And Heidi St. John, the busy mom, We'll be back with us on Friday, a loaded week. Thank you so much again for tuning in and for sharing our podcast, please, on social media. God bless you and keep speaking the truth about things that matter.